Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Carrie Johnson. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. We have two guests with us today, Forrester analysts Anjali Lai and James McQuivy, to discuss our predictions for the customer in 2020. Welcome, Anjali and James. Thanks so much. Great to be here. So guys, this is the first time that we've done a predictions doc on the customer. So why now? You know, we've been doing predictions documents at the end of every year. It feels like forever. But what happens in all of them is that we end up saying things that are driven by changes that are happening inside the consumer. The consumer is experiencing change and they're expressing it. And we're saying to the CMO or to the CIO or we're saying you're going to have to deal with this. And we, we realized, you know, we, we had to put down what those specific changes are. And because there are some very specific ones, as you know, uh, that we needed to make sure we got out in front of people. And uh, so it felt right. Yeah. And James, I'll, I'll add to that, that um, over the years, we've been building up our data resources and, of course, our robust research and knowledge about how consumers have been changing. And there have been some recent um, intriguing sort of insights or trends that we've seen in the data that are sort of counter to some of the assumptions we've heard in the marketplace before. Things like the fact that even though consumers are using um, or adopting more technologies, they're not necessarily uh, driving a higher level of happiness or meaning from those technologies, despite the fact that they now have access to almost any brand or any product at any price point in the world, um, they're not necessarily uh, experiencing a higher sense of well-being. Um, so this uh, sort of counterintuitive uh, insight was really intriguing that we think is going to be um, impactful in the coming year. And we thought that this was a good chance to shine a spotlight on that and dig into why this is the case and what it means in the near future. And beyond the the very large statement that you just made about us having access to many things, but not feeling, you know, we're no more happier or fulfilled. I mean, maybe we dive in a little bit deeper on that one in particular, but what are the other sort of counterintuitive or surprising things that you've surfaced here? Well, that one ends up being fundamental because we've been telling everyone in our research of just make the experience better. People will be happier. And in fact, measured in many ways, they are happier in, in that they're happier that they got the thing they wanted more easily. Uh, it makes them more satisfied. You know, we have seen our, our customer experience numbers rise, although then plateau. And that's part of what we were curious to see whether or not there was something happening on the consumer side of that and that would cause that general plateauing. But when we look at the consumer saying, yeah, I've, I am happy. I mean, it's not that people are distressed that they're having these needs met so easily. It's that they now don't look forward and say, wow, tomorrow's even going to be better than yesterday. If you go back in time to some of the data we've been collecting for decades now, there was a time when people said, yeah, I can't wait until I can shop more online. I can buy other categories online. There's a sort of anticipation. Oh, I can't wait to see what the next device is going to be from Apple. And there's still some of that. I mean, 10 million people signed up for Disney Plus on day one. So there is still some consumer anticipation for specific benefits but the overall emotional satisfaction and, hey, I'm really glad to be living in the day that I'm living in, it's not rising. Is technology hurting that? I mean, I thought we, we expected technology to make that better. Yes. But the specific idea that consumers are not feeling great emotionally about where they are right now because they don't have a lot to look forward to, what's driving that? 
Well, Anjali, I know, has models because we've been talking about this for some time together in the data that she's very close to. I'll add some just historical context. There are some things here that have been happening in our culture for 30 years that are really independent of technology. Uh, One of them, you know, Robert Putnam here at at Harvard in the 90s advanced the bowling alone hypothesis is that people were less associated or less affiliated, to use the, the sociological term, with organizations, community groups, churches, things that used to give them some sense of connection and and a source of friends and a source of all the things that those organizations provide. So that's been going on for 30 years. And when he first proposed in the 90s, a lot of people said, no, we don't see that in the data. But at this point, we do see it. It's really clear. So we can't say Facebook caused that. But we can say, what is Facebook doing in that vacuum? Is it filling the vacuum? Or is it for some people actually making it suck more since <laughs> vacuums suck. I can say that, right? Is that okay? Yeah. Um, and, and for some people, the answer is going to be yes. So we're not suggesting that our data is showing that that's massively happening across the spectrum. But uh, I'll be curious to see what Anjali thinks, that in her data, she's identified different segments who are responding differently to some of these things. And, and it could be, depending on who your, segment tar- your target segment is, you might be facing a customer base that's going to be harder to please than the average. Yeah, James, that's absolutely right. And in, in the empowered customer segmentation, we uh, see that you know about 21% of consumers in the U.S. today fall into that progressive pioneer category, which is essentially the most, relatively the most empowered consumer group. Um, these are the consumers that um, you know are adopting technologies uh, the fastest. They are. Um, you know, generally speaking, most um, optimistic, to use your word from earlier, about new brands and, and products and experiences that are available to them. But they're also most sensitive to the emotional quality of the experience. And we've seen this in the data, statistically speaking, um, you know, when we look at the three E's of the customer experience, right, the ease, the effectiveness, and the emotion, um, emotion is uh, statistically the strongest driver of loyalty specifically for the progressive pioneers, where actually for the relatively less empowered consumers, like the subtle survivors and reserve resistors at the other end of the spectrum, um, ease tends to be the strongest driver of loyalty. So for this particular empowered group, they are uh, not only engaging with more brands and more products, but they're also hypersensitive to the emotional element, which in the past hasn't typically been prioritized, um, especially when it comes to digital experiences. And so it's sort of this this lack of um, uh, you know, empathy, this lack of emotion that they feel through these digital channels and tools that is, um, you know, leaving them uh, unfulfilled at the end of the day. Help me understand this logic change to make sure I think I have it right. So uh, there's people who are very empowered. James, to connect the dots with what you're saying, they're less part of traditional human-based affiliation. So these empowered folks, they're finding digital affiliations and it's unsatisfying. And that's what I'm sort of seeing. And this isn't another piece of research that you did, Anjali, recently that was amazing about meaning where you said people are going to digital to find people like them. But yet you're saying these digital experiences are largely unsatisfying, I think. Yeah. It feels like a dangerous behavior that is then hurting yourself. Or maybe it's maybe there's positives there, too. But it feels like people are going there for happiness and finding unhappiness. So or I, being unfulfilled. I don't know. Unfulfilling. Yeah. 
Right. I, I think you've, you've really uh, hit a, a very important point here, which is that, you know, the technology is sort of the knife that cuts both ways. And the way that I view it is it's how consumers are using the technology and the specific features that they're engaging with most that drive the emotional outcome, right, or drive whether they find that meaning or that fulfillment. So on one hand, you have consumers that are hypersensitive to the you know, negative reaction of, say, their social media experiences um, because they view these platforms as you know, massive sort of ways to um, catalog all of the risks or you know, threats that are sort of existing in the world around them. Um, social media has given enormous transparency into how business Businesses work and to, of course, you know, events that are happening around the world that customers didn't have in the past. Uh, and to some consumers, that ends up being detrimental, right? Being sort of awakened to all of the risks around them um, is leaving them less optimistic about their uh, about their future. But then on the other hand, you other you also have consumers that are turning to uh, social media and specifically are finding like-minded consumers and are joining these really niche sort of consumer groups. And oftentimes these are in more kind of closed or protected environments. Um, and in that context, they are fulfilling that need for connection. They are um, feeling like they're part of a, of, a, of a community. And, you know, these groups aren't just necessarily rallying around demographic similarities, right? Oftentimes these are groups that are formed around specific um, values or, you know, social causes. That makes for a really deep emotional connection. I want to make, if it's useful, a historical comparison. If you remember, there was a time when Google was lauded for having this interface, which was just a text search box. And the result that came back was, you know, five million documents match your search, and here they are in order. And, you know, that was incredibly liberating. And talk about giving us the sense of promise that all the world's information is at our fingertips. It didn't take very long before you realized that of those 5 million, you know, 4 million, 900, whatever, <laughs> were useless and some of them were fraudulent and some of them were bad. And so it, what I think has happened is we've moved from a world of 5 million search results and that's all good to a world of, Alexa, give me one answer to my question. And that's a, that's a big change and I think it reflects a consumer unwillingness to do what they used to consider the rewarding labor of using these technologies and navigating them. And so now Facebook used to be this amazing platform for connecting and sharing and seeing everybody's everything and oversharing yourself. And now people are retreating into closed. This is one of the observations we made in our predictions document. They're retreating into closed uh, digital environments, uh, something like Marco Polo, which is uh, a video-based sharing, social sharing experience, but in a closed way. You, you pick six people who are going to see that video and they see it and that's all the, that they, they're the only ones who get to see it. And that environment is reflective of where people are going. The work of, I like a big open environment where anything could happen is suddenly too much effort, for appropriately so. And now we're saying, all right, where's the company? Where's the experience? Where's the platform? Where's the product? that's going to eliminate all of those things that I, 20 years ago, used to have to do the work to get value out of. Now I don't want to do the work. And I don't want to say it that way to make it sound like they're just being lazy. It's that they've come to a recognition that that work is really, <laughs> it's too much effort for too little reward. And whereas if the company can step up and say, you know what, we understand who you are and we've curated an environment where you're going to get what you need. I mean, this is a success of Peloton. It is completely saying, 
we are people who care about this one thing and we're all going to care about it together and we're going to have this shared, even though it's digital, positive. physical, very right. positive mm-hmm. experience, reinforcing. Um, that That is the model where we see a lot of companies going is in a very closed, protected and curated way. Yeah, James, you said something really interesting there that I want to just um, re, sort of reiterate and emphasize, which is that, uh, you know, the brilliance of the brands that are staying close to their customers today is that they are um, easing that decision anxiety, right? They're providing um, that easier experience that reduces the effort uh, investment from the consumer side. But you also just use the word care, right? So you're saying that Peloton is great because it creates this community to show that the brand is on the same side as the consumers and they are, these entities are all caring for the same thing. And I think that's another really important theme uh, that plays into this conversation, which is that consumers are not only looking for technologies or companies that are making their lives measurably easier, um, but they're also looking for brands to show that they care. And that, and that's reflected in the data, right? So close to half of consumers are looking for companies to um, uh, design experiences that feel more personally relevant, right? They want that personal um, connection. And, and 32% of consumers complain that uh, retail chains feel too impersonal or too remote. So I think there's something about that proximity um, or that feeling of closeness that consumers have as well with companies that is becoming even more important in this environment. But I think there's nuance there that we should talk about because often marketers equate a personalized experience with using a ton of data about that person to provide something like they assume that they that the consumer wants this extremely highly personalized experience. But one of the points that you make in this research is that this notion of like a group targeted experience, that that could be equally as powerful, if not more desired from a consumer than some, you know, I'm not saying like, hey, dear Jennifer, and that's a personalized experience, but something that goes beyond that, maybe that's not what I what I want. I like to describe it this way, that we're coming more and more to live as the center of our own individual universes. But then over time, you realize that that universe is pretty empty because mm-hmm. it's just you. Right. And so having companies consistently say to you, you want this pair of pants. We know you do. Um, maybe you do. But you can only get that message so many times. Before, maybe you already bought that pair Maybe you already bought that pair <laughs> That's, of course, the other problem. But the, but the challenge there is how, how do you say to people, look, we want to create an environment in which you can raise your hand to say, I want to be a part of this group. Now, being part of a group is important. That's fundamental to who we are and who we evolved to be. We, we are not atomized individuals. And this is why the bowling alone reference I made mm-hmm. earlier is, is relatively important for us to understand. So, you know, when you mention a Peloton or somebody like that who is, who is grouping people together and, and doesn't say, I need to know your waist size, I need to know your shoe size. Right. And if you're right. Under Armour, maybe you do need to know that stuff. But if you're Peloton, you don't. You just need to know, oh, are you in this class or in that class? That example is so vivid to me because what you're saying in the Peloton example is those people care maybe about fitness, but they're also just a general air quote value there. There is a positive group supported vibe. And Anjali, in the work that you've done, and we've done a podcast, at least one about this around the values ideas. I think when brands hear you need to stand for something, they hear choose a side. And I, and what I hear you saying now is values don't have to be about a side. They can also just be a more inclusive message. 
the value that people have intrinsically is who has got my back? Who is rooting for me? Um, it's not what political or social side or argument, those things of course can matter, but at the fundamental level, it's, are, are you going to be there for me when I need something? And if you're a financial services company, if you're a healthcare right. or and wellness related company, that has to be paramount. It can't be, is your rate better or worse than someone else who has a competitive product? Of course, that's relevant information. But in the end, when my, you know, we've seen this in examples from uh, the world of, of farming and tractors. John Deere does this amazing bit of work with people who aren't able to make payments on their tractors. And instead of just going in and saying, oh, you're in default now, you're at risk. What are you going to do? They go in and they identify which people might be remediable, to use the you know cold language. Mm -hmm. But really they're saying, we don't want you to default on this loan any more than you do. We don't want your farm to fail. What can we do to work together so that eventually over time you'll pay us back, but most more important, you're going to stay in business and you're going to be able to feed your family. I mean, those uh, tractor owners never are moving from John Deere to Kubota. Never. Because they were cared for in their moment of need. And, and there are it's not every category that has the potential to reach into your life like that. I understand that. Um, but even so, knowing that even if you had four brands that are in your corner that are going to have your back, that would be a huge number. That might explain why some of the more values-based wars are, are occurring in places like retail and fast food and others where there's not as obvious value tie um, that either the brand itself or the customers of galvanized around something more polarizing versus just the we have your back story. I mean, it's harder, I think, for those companies to come up with that kind of storyline. Well, and you also have a very high turnover of that decision process. You're only going to buy a tractor every certain number right. of years, maybe right. even decade, whereas you're going to you're going to choose, uh, you know, which shirt to put on your back or which toothpaste to put in your mouth with some regularity in theory. Um, so you have to make more grabs for customer intention. But I mean, this all gets to one of the ominous clouds hanging over our conversation here, which is, so if a company hears what we're saying and says, oh, okay, good. So I just need to go in and tell everyone how much I'm going to be in their corner or have their back and then steal them blind. <laughs> you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, this was, Anjali was really the one who brought this into this uh, research. So I don't want to steal her thunder, but, but Anjali, what was motivating you and we, we're having this conversation about, look at how all these things are changing. You're the one that said, look, this is so easily exploitable. Yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, sort of the, the dark side of the argument, right? Or the, the potential of, of uh, what could be given consumers um, yearning, really, for um, an entity to trust in and to uh, attach their hopes to and to use as um, a uh, mechanism to feel connected to others. The, the, the risk associated with that is that consumers could project that same um, desire onto companies that um, don't necessarily follow through with this fantastic promise that they're making. Um, and, and so, you know, we're sort of at this, uh, you know, point at which, you know, deep fakes are on the rise and um, there's a lot of sort of skepticism around the, uh, you know, what people are reading online and, um, you know, whom they can trust, what they can believe in. And I, I, I really think that this is going to become um, a much bigger, uh, very real threat moving forward, given consumers' desire to uh, to connect and to get the sense of meaning and to hope and, and their reliance on companies. And it basically means that, um, you know, the executives that are making the calls have even more um, 
stake, right? They have even a, a bigger obligation to their consumers to take value seriously, to possibly re-examine, um, you know, what marketing ethics look like today, for example, um, and figure out what is the the uh, what are the guideposts, what is the rubric that they use to make their decisions moving forward? Because um, all of a sudden, the the reach um, and the emotional effect that their uh, businesses uh, will have on consumer well-being will um, accelerate. And what I heard in there, you said that consumers have this desire to connect. Because on the one hand, you could just say, oh, in a world of deep fakes, we should just tell everyone to be more skeptical, and that'll solve the problem. And everyone to be rationally skeptical, and that'll solve the problem. And actually, I think rational skepticism is not a bad thing. Um, but we do have this craving to connect. And so, you know, someone is going to be able to penetrate your cloud of rational skepticism with an offer that you're going to feel drawn to. You're going to say, ah, finally, somebody gets me. Someone cares about what I care about. And you're going to go all in. And then all of a sudden you realize I'm now in a place of potential vulnerability. So companies, to really nail this, it's not just do it right so that you win the customer. It's do it right so that you can sustain what you've won from the customer. And that's... That's a whole new approach to marketing. That sounds hard. It's got to be hard. <laughs> I mean, this is, think about the turnover of CMOs, which is in our other CMO prediction stock. We've got CMOs disappearing from major companies, and they're not being replaced. Mm-hmm. So how does a CMO come in and say, we're going to create an ethical approach to how we build a long-term relationship with customers, and then that CMO is gone two years later and doesn't even get replaced? How Especially that- if they're replaced with a chief revenue officer, which was one of the calls. Which chief revenue officer, yeah. does not seem like a title that's well aligned to what you just discussed. Fair point. Yeah. Well, I think there's this the concept of like ethical marketing, but also, and maybe this is sort of asserted in the comment, is also this moment of authenticity, right? Like not just this notion of deep fakes or dark patterns or things of that nature, but you have to make the assertion or connect your brand to an authentic thing so that there's buy-in from the customer and the consumer. That's of equal importance to here, right? Like the authenticity of what you're asserting, what your values are. Well, the problem is most companies, if that's a marketing exercise, what are our values? Let's go tell someone what our values right. are. It won't be reflected in the actual experience. And that, that's what we're seeing. I, I work with a lot of financial services companies. They're under a lot of stress right now. And most all of them, without fail, are responding to this idea that we do have to not connect to people to sell them a loan or a checking account. But to say, what is it you're trying to accomplish? What what are your goals you're trying to save for college? You're trying to go on a vacation next year, whatever it is. We want to show you that we care about that thing. But once it gets through all the product barriers, the compliance officers, the marketing planning, and then the conversation with the agency, which then comes up with their own idea and their own pitch, that whole idea gets lost and it gets back down to, you know, 3.9%. So this is this is going to be hard. There's a point in the predictions doc um, to bring it back to that where it talks about consumers starting to not be able to differentiate between human and digital experiences. Mm. I think it relates to this point a bit, unless I'm stretching too far, in that it is hard to do. What's the role of technology here to help in becoming more human versus more transactional or creepy, Jen, is what you were referring to earlier? Now, I think that the most obvious thing here is, and we say it in all of our research, 
You know, you don't use chatbots just because you can use chatbots. You use them strategically so that you can reach humans at the level of their human needs. And that's going to require humans somewhere in the experience. Um, and humans are really good at that. And they want to do it. So the, from my perspective, whether the human actually talks to the human or the human is, is overseeing the process to make sure that the outcome is human, uh, some combination of that's going to be happening depending on the brand, depending on the industry, depending on the product. Um, but humans know humans and humans want to help humans. It's another thing. We're talking about this as a purely consumer phenomenon, but this is an employee experience phenomenon as well. People come to work desperate for affiliation because they're not bowling anymore. Not that anyone has bowled for 30 years, but they're not doing these things. And so they come to work and they're saying to work. I mean, I've talked to our own employee experience leaders here and they're saying, show me meaning, show me purpose in my work. And so we get the human customer happier and we get the human employee happier. Wow. This is one of those authentic win-wins. We should be reaching for that. Yeah, James, I think what you say is, is really interesting that a human has to be in the process somewhere. And I would add that it's because human beings are hardwired to be empathetic. So even in the example that you were just giving around how, you know, a marketer makes a certain call and after you go through the entire uh, almost supply chain of the, you know the, what's required for the messaging before the delivery. Um, you know it's that process that removes the decision maker from the end user or the recipient of the message. Um, whereas if uh, people, right, decision makers, leaders have a closer observation of consumers or are more closely connected to their users, I think that empathy will sort of naturally kick in. Um, and that's what differentiates human beings from technologies as well, right? A, a computer will never be empathetic or a robot will never be empathetic. It can express emotional intelligence or can show, you know, a variation of tone and uh, facial expressions that make it look or mimic human communication. But it will never fundamentally, um, again, to go back to the word we've been using earlier, care about the consumer. So all of that is to say that, um, again, it's, it's not necessarily a function of technology, right? Or technology is not going to determine whether um, a, an experience is successful or not, whether a consumer has the sense of meaning fulfilled or not, but it's how the human beings behind the technology decisions wield <laughs> technology to, uh, to, to deliver some sort of emotional reaction or, or create an emotional connection with their end user. One of the things I wanted to call out here is, and maybe this is not the right word, but this notion of co-creation or working with your customer to to build your product or the experience. And you sort of call out, um, I think, the Apple Watch Series 5 customers here who are like volunteering their health data to inform or make things better for their, you know, other customers or their peer set. That's an interesting shift, I think, that's happening today, um, especially in a more privacy-aware world. Um, but that sort of speaks to the connection point that you just made and this sort of group experience and people wanting to be connected and feel a part of something bigger than themselves. So many of the consumer decisions that people make, they come home feeling good because they saved money, they got a deal, they got an exclusive product, whatever it is. And that's all fine. That's that's good. That can be good. But in this Apple uh, Watch Series 5 example, what's so subtle about it? And 
I hope people will grasp this, is Apple is saying, by using our product, you're going to help us save lives. It is not actually an exaggeration. And that would be so easy to detect and say, ah, oh, you're just you know, hyping up your products. No, they are literally saving lives because as a group, the more data they collect, the more they're going to be able to see signs that you might have a heart arrhythmia or something that you need to have investigated. And they're going to send you to the doctor to check it out based on your data compared to everyone else's data. Now, very few products are in that position. I, I recognize that. But what it gets at is people want to be a part of the solution, whatever the solution is. Other people's well-being, fine. Other people's financial security, fine. Whatever it is. I mean, we, we, this, is, this is credit union 101. It's why credit unions worked back in the day versus banks. You were putting your money in and so was everyone else in your community and they were all drawing from it when they needed it. That, that message works. It's always worked and it's going to keep working because it's authentic, first of all. But it actually can generate value, real value that people want to pay for. And I Just want to point out that this yeah. is something that, that has um, accelerated over time, or we've seen this growing over time. So uh, in that empowered customer segmentation that I mentioned at the beginning, the 21% of consumers that are progressive pioneers are most empowered are also the ones that are most ready and willing to uh, participate in their brand experiences. Um, they are the ones that are actively giving feedback, that want to have not just a one-way relationship or transactional relationship with a brand, they want to you know, exchange in a two-way dialogue with, with a brand. Um, and, and they're you know, flocking to the companies that are allowing them to have this um, you know, intimate conversation. Um, and so that's a trend that we've been seeing is increased over time and continues to do so today. And uh, part of the reason that it's so important is because it's one of the core components of this idea of meaning making, right? So we're talking about fulfilling this um, need for, for purpose and for meaning. And, and uh, in the research, we found that consumers um, arrive at a moment of meaning when they take action and when they do something um, related to their values when they participate in a brand experience and whether that's um, something as um, relatively subtle as you know sharing your Apple watch data um, or whether it's something more sort of obvious and, and physical like um, going into a store and you know working side by side with employees to um, rebuild local communities which is something that Martin Spencer has started to do through its uh, spark something good program um, you are uh, inviting consumers into the experience and uh, therefore helping to fulfill this uh, emotional need that, that we're talking about. As you both talked, I realized something that maybe others have realized, but it felt profound for, for me was that if you look at the history of something like ratings and reviews online, even just say on Amazon, the original relationship seemed to be between the customer and the brand. They were trying to give feedback about the product those ratings and reviews are now almost exclusively focused on helping other customers. Like my dog is 85 pounds. I bought a size X. That is not for the brand. They already have that data. And it's a really interesting component of this going back to one of your points about ultimately we are born empathetic and have empathy and want to help others, which is a much more uplifting message, <laughs> frankly, than a lot of what you're hearing about human behavior right now. Yeah. Well, we're born to it, but we still have to cultivate it. We do. And we still have to create opportunities to express it and to be rewarded for it. And that's why it's so powerful when an Apple can stand up and say, right. thank you for helping us save lives. We're cultivating and rewarding this instinct. But you're right. It, it can happen even when you just post a comment uh, that's intended to help another reader or another, you know, it's just why it's such a shame that I, Anjali said this earlier, all of these things are a, a knife that cuts both ways. 
in that you can also have trolls hit the comments and say all these mean things and just try to criticize everyone. So, you know, we're born to do good things and we're also capable of doing harmful things. But but from a brand's perspective, mm-hmm. your your goal literally can be to invite as much of the good as possible and reward the good. Anjali, you made reference to this previously in our conversation, but what are the other pieces that are coming down the pike that the audience leaders today should be paying attention to specifically? So uh, we've, you know, hit on some very, very big topics and all of these warrant uh, deeper research. Um, So I can say that, you know, in the immediate term, um, I'm planning to look more closely at authenticity, Um, you know, what it is, what are the components of it, how do you, what sort of control does a brand have over its own authenticity um, and what does that mean for the chief marketing officer? Um, Related to that, I'm also looking at the concept of trust. What I really want to do is uh, look more broadly at what it is about how human beings trust. So even, you know, if we look outside of the business context or the consumer context, um, what are the mechanisms that drive uh, one human being to trust another? Um, And then what can we learn from that uh, to apply in the company as we're developing a culture of high trust among employees or uh, trustworthy brands for our consumers. And the third piece I want to mention is also diving into this idea of empathy. We talked about it a lot in this conversation, and I think uh, it's another term that's thrown around quite a bit in the market right now, especially as we're getting to this point of um, realizing how much um, you know, sort of manipulation exists in, in the marketplace. So what what is empathy? How do you cultivate empathy? Uh, what are the risks when um, an entity expresses empathy, but it's not authentic? So all of these concepts are tightly related, um, but I'll be examining each one of these separately and then sort of tying it all together into, you know, what does this mean for marketing over the course of next year? Great. Thanks, guys, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.